The book of Acts is here to dismantle a lot of the stereotypes that build up in our own lives. I have them. Where we begin to believe a Christian is. This, you know, we, we, we have our, our boilerplate that everyone has to fit into. So what Acts does is it's continually chipping away at that saying, hold on, maybe not. So if you're with us on Wednesday, we looked at Acts 14, which is the first time there's a recorded message to people that have no Bible. So before that, it was messages to people that had read the Bible. So there's quotations from Psalms and Deuteronomy and the prophets. Like there's a lot of Bible in the sermons. Acts 14 is the first time the gospel is presented to people that have no idea that there's a Bible. And it's so brilliant and beautiful and simple. I love it. Paul does two things. He says, God's your creator and he's good. And that's it. I'll tell you, I've never heard that at an evangelistic crusade, but I love it. It's brilliantly simple. So Acts 16, here's what we get. If you were a religious person reading this letter 2,000 years ago, you'd be shocked by who gets in and then you'd be shocked by how they get in, right? Who here has taken an, evan e an evangelism course? Now, I'm not against evangelism courses, um, but I think what happens is in order to teach a course, and I do this, you have to flatten things down. So you can't share all the nuances and you gotta get to the middle of the bell, bell curve essentially. And the sides, you just can't, you can't deal with them all. So that's what happens. And sometimes like the classes and the methods just get weird. Like there's weird evangelism methods. Have you heard of jelly bean evangelism? I'm glad you haven't. Regretfully, it's a true thing where you can share supposedly the good news with jelly beans. Like you pull them out of your pocket. Hold on, hold on. You wanna hear about Jesus? Hold on a second here. Uh, look, excuse me, get rid of that lint right there. Black is you as a sinner, right? It's that whole thing. You're like, I'm like, oh man, I just don't know if that's the best way. And there's just awkward people. Like they're just awkward about it. Like, hey, did you watch the game last night? Oh, no, I didn't watch the game. No, sorry. Oh, why not? I was reading Ephesians and writing out my five-minute testimony. Oh, do you have a five-minute testimony? No. Oh, enjoy the game because you're going to hell. <laughs> Super effective, I think. That's really gonna get people intrigued. They'll fall down and be like, Jesus, save me from this dude. Get him away from me. <laughs> right, there's just weird stuff. Do you know where you will be when you die? Do not ask that question on a plane. You'll be beat up and arrested, okay? Do you know something we don't know? So there's all this kind of like, hmm, and we, we built up structures that, that some are good, but some of them need to be critiqued by the original. And that's what Acts does. It comes in and it critiques our structures by the original. And we should always be being critiqued by the original. So what we have right here in Acts chapter 16 is there are three case studies of how people get saved. And it is as diverse as you can get spiritually, ethnically, uh, uh, economically, psychologically, past. I mean, it's, there is diverse and then the methods fit the person brilliantly. Okay, so are you ready? We need these three case studies. And what I hope is you're set free. You're set free to be what you're supposed to be to the community that you're planted in right now. 
Okay, so case study number one. Paul and Silas, second missionary journey. In the city of Philippi, here's what happens. Verse 13, Acts 16. Case study number one. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira is in Asia, so she's Asian. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Conversion number one, rich lady. So here's what we know. She's from Thyatira, where they make this purple cloth. And she is exporting it to Philippi, where she has a house, probably a house in Thyatira and a house in Philippi. And the house she has is so big, she can invite Paul and his entourage, which has grown to this point, probably 12 people, to come stay at her house. She's wealthy. Modernize her, right? She is the CEO, founder, CEO of a clothing company that she started, she designed it, she owns it. It is hugely successful. She has a magazine named L. She has this Riverside place where she goes down and talks about life and whatever, right? She is successful. And she did this 2000 years ago when the obstacles to women were much higher than they are today. And so for her to overcome these things and become two homes, running a business, for her to have done all this, man, she is in the top 99.99% of women. She is way up there. Outstanding, go for it entrepreneur. She's, she's reached levels that very few do. And even though she has, she's still searching. She's going to the side of a river and she's at the side of the river trying to figure life out. Isn't that surprising? You would think someone that had this much success would be satisfied, but she's not. And that's in all of us, is it not? It doesn't matter how high we, we reach, how far we go. There's always something more. There's always something further to do or experience or to attain. It's always out there. Animals don't have this. Have you heard the saying, happy as a clam? Right? Clams aren't worried about trying to get somewhere. Like, oh, if I could only do a little bit more mucking filtering That'd be awesome. If I could just filter more muck in life, I could then have more of this stuff. And no, they just happy. What are you doing? Filtering muck. Are you happy? I'm so happy. But humans, we all have it. I'll prove it to you. America today, 2018, is in the top 1%, half percent of world wealth throughout history. When you look at us today and you reflect, not just back on the world today, but you reflect back thousands of years, we are in a category that has never been seen before. I mean, we're, we're unbelievably wealthy. There's no one even close to us. The average American lives like a king, better than a king and queen in the ancient world. Like we have things you cannot believe. Running water, 
toilets. Like we live, at, we, we, we live in Camelot, all of us do, okay? The average one does. So let me ask you this question. Based on that, who here would say, you know, I have enough money. I don't want any more money. Raise your hand. Because if you do, I'd like to talk to you about a building project. <laughs> we can relieve you of some of that, that burden. No, there's always, just a, if I just had a little bit more money, then I could do this, right? That's in all of us, even though we on the history of humanity are in a category by ourselves. And yet they're still in us, just a little bit more. Ever search for a car? A used car? Or you start out with a budget, whatever it is, three grand, five grand, 10 grand, whatever it is. You have this budget and there's always like, well, you know, if I can get that for five grand, what can I get for 7,500? Ooh, what can I get for 10 grand? Forget it, I'm taking a mortgage, 50 grand, what can I get it for 50 grand? Right? I want something, there's always something, a newer model, a little bit newer stuff. There's always, ah, it's, it's like a carrot out in front of us that we run after our whole life and we don't figure it out till we're in a hospital bed hooked to tubes that it was a worthless journey. And that's in all of us. Now, why is that? Why is there this angst and this drive to always kind of, I, I need more, I need to attain more. Here's why I believe. Because we are created, Genesis 1 says, as image bearers of God. We have a capacity that is so great that nothing this side of eternity is ever gonna fill that capacity. And so we can sense in us this great capacity and we keep trying to get more and more, but that capacity, it's, just, it's too great. It doesn't matter how much you get. We can never get what we really, really need. And so there's in us this, ah, if I could just be more accomplished, if I just had a better reputation, if I just, whatever it was, there's, there's always a carrot out there for all of us. So here's what I say we are. And um, this came from, I probably heard it to be honest. I don't know though. Um, I'm in Israel. I was with my wife, awesome time. And we go to these places where there's these ruins, right? And there'd be this, this sign that would have an artist's rendering of what the ruins looked like 2000 years ago. Colonnades and marble and gold. And you're just like, wow. And then you look up and you're like, yeah, I can see maybe a little piece of colonnade there and some marble and a roof. Oh yeah, kind of. Us humans, we're a glorious ruin. That what our original creator and artist had for us is brilliant and beautiful, but an earthquake hit in Genesis three and it fractured and broke what we were supposed to be. And we're all trying to get back to the glorious thing that we were, but we're ruined in some way. And we all sense that. And we all feel that from the least to the greatest. And Lydia as successful as she could ever imagine as a woman 2,000 years ago, she senses it. She, so one day, a couple of her friends invite her to a Bible study, Beth Moore study, <laughs> Priscilla Schreier Bible study. Come, listen to this. She's there at this women's Bible study. All of a sudden, a dude shows up. What's the dude doing here? It's Paul. And he shares with her the gospel. I bet he shares with her the kingdom. Everybody shares with her that idea of you're the Imago Dei, the greatness of humans and what we were actually designed to do and that right now you're, we're, we're saved from something, but we're also saved to something to get back to our glorious design. That's what we're saved to. So he shares all that. She says, yes, 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 believes in Jesus and she gets saved. How is she saved? Through a sermon. It's, you know, Sunday morning, if you would, sermon is preached, discussion, intellect, 
Questions are answered, makes sense, worldview explained. And she says, yeah, that's it. So the CEO lady gets saved by a sermon and by discussion and by answers. And that was evangelism. So here's audience participation time. I mean, think about Lydia getting saved by sermon and by talking and discussing. Who here would say, that's pretty close to how I got saved. Had some angst in my life, had some things, went to church, started listening, started talking. It made sense to me. And so finally one day I said, yes, God opened my heart and I believed and I was saved. Who here would say, that's how I got saved. Raise your hand, I wanna see them. Yeah, that's a lot of us. So a lot of Lydia's, right? So that's number one, saved through a sermon. Number two, verse 16. As we are going to the place of prayer, we are met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. The word divination there is literally python. She has the python spirit. There's a whole Greek myth that goes with this. Um, I don't have time for it, but it's fascinating. And it was a system and a culture set up around this that was entrapping her. It's a really bad system. And it brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Case study two. How different is this one? You have an exploited girl. She's Greek, most likely. So she's not Asian, she's Greek. Uh, she is under the power of a system that's entrapped her and is exploiting her. So if we brought her into the modern times, it'd be something like this. She grew up in a family, got busted up by drugs and alcohol and violence and domestic violence, just bad place. She gets pulled into the foster care system. It doesn't do her well, as sometimes happens. And then she runs away at 14 and begins to live on the street. And she does whatever is necessary in the street to survive. And she ends up getting trafficked and owned by these men who exploit her body for money and make money off her. And they keep her trapped in that system and she can't escape the system. There's just no way, she can't escape it. There are systems like that today. Like I talked to a girl who been, had been trafficked and she had made a bunch of money one night and she took that money and she just wanted to buy a plane ticket home. Like I can finally escape. So she went to the airport to go buy a ticket, post 9-11. So she brought in a bunch of cash to buy a one-way ticket. And guess what they said to her? No, we don't sell one-way tickets for cash. You need to wait two weeks. Buy it, wait two weeks, we research you because people that buy one-way tickets on cash gets into all kinds of trouble. They do bad things on planes. So she had to just take her cash and run back to her pimp. Like there are systems sometimes that we don't even realize it. They're entrapping people. And there was a system like this right here, entrapping this girl. She could not get out of it. Okay, so she, you've got Lydia, rich CEO. You've got slave girl, poor, homeless, right? So you've got Lydia who grew up probably in Camelot, great family, solid, good. You've got slave girl who grew up in Crescent City. It's all the problems there. Right? Very different backgrounds, spiritually. How different are they spiritually? Like Lydia, she's in the middle of the bell curve. This girl, she sees Paul and Silas, and what does she say when she sees them? 
these two are servants of the most high God and they bring to you the way of salvation. Is that right? 100% right. How does she know that? Here's something amazing to me. In talking with people that have gone like this slave girl, have been involved in bad things and evil and been torched by evil, it's like they become idiot savants. It's like, because of what they've gone through, their minds, they know more about spiritual things than I do. I'm like, wow, how do you know all that? Because I saw it, because it was in me, because I experienced it. Like they know more about that than theologians do because they've been in, it, been in it. And that's what she does. She's got this kind of, this perception and she's got this insight into the dark side of life that most people do not because of what she has been through, how she's saved. Paul sit her down and preach a sermon to her, open up the scriptures to her, four spiritual laws, jelly bean evangelism. Do you know where you're gonna go when you die? Uh-uh. What does he do? He doesn't even address her. Notice what he does. Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, he has to confront the dark power that is trapping her. I can't talk to you. I can't have a conversation with you right now because you're under such captivity and you're under such dominance of this dark power. I have to deal with that power before I can ever actually come and talk to you. First it's dark power, then I'll talk to you. It's like, have you ever tried to witness to an alcoholic who's drunk at the time? Forget it, right? Why? Because he's under the influence of a dark power and there's just, you can't have a conversation with them. People in heroin, I've tried to, I've stopped. It's just, dude, you got it cleaned up first. You gotta have a good meal and rest. I can't talk to you. You're underneath the power right now. So he confronts a dark power in the name of Jesus. Listen, dark power, the king has come. He has triumphed over you. You have no authority over this girl. Get out now. And the spirit leaves right away. He confronts the system that is actually entrapping this girl inside of it. He gets rid of the system. And by the way, because Paul does this, he'll get the snot kicked out of him. The culture responds by saying, we don't like that, we're beating you up. You can expect that. If you wanna confront dark powers, you can expect them to come after you and try to get you. And that's what happens to Paul. We'll see you in a second. Right? She gets saved by the dark powers being dismantled in her life and being set free from them so that she can hear and understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Brilliant. And there are some in here there's someone here who are like this slave girl. They look at Lydia and they say, man, I wish I had that testimony. Oh man, success, 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 salvation. That sounds really good to me. That's not been the way for me. Instead, it's been hard and evil and addiction and abuse and deception and enslavement and drugs and partying and grossness. And it's just ruined me. And I came to the end of myself and I was despairing and then Jesus stepped in and set me free from those dark powers and got rid of that old master and made me a new creation. And there's some like that in here. And by the way, when I looked at these three, I said, this one's closest to mine. So if you're out there right now, you said, Lydia's not my story. If you say, hey, this slave girl's closer to my story, I want you to raise your hand. Raise it high. What was so funny is in the eight o'clock, I had people do this. They just went like this. Like there's a, still a shame that can run with us because of what has happened to us, because of 
the dark powers that have exploited us, there's still a shame to it. Don't be ashamed of it. Jesus set you free. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's brilliant. Let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Man, no shame. God saves us from dark powers, just like this girl, okay? So that's number two. Number three is the jailer. Look at verse 19. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I bet they were like, you guys, what are you on? Can I have some? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? How's that for evangelism? Pretty easy there. Okay. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Case study number three, the jaded jailer. He would be a Roman soldier who had retired. Part of his retirement package was a cushy job as a jailer in the resort town of Philippi. Just a great job. So here he is, modernize him. He is a ex-Marine drill sergeant. He has three kids. All of them, their haircuts are all high and tight, even his daughter. It looks good, sweetie. Keeps it out of your way. Right, they all have their tees tucked in. Olive green is the color of choice. Shoes that are just shiny like the sun. When they address you, it's always, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. You like them, they're polite, good kids. You want your daughters to marry those boys. Like they're awesome kids, right? This man has zero interest in spiritual things. He has no need for it, right? I have raised a moral family. I have served my country well. I am serving my city right now by keeping it safe. I have done my job. I've always obeyed my commands. Christianity, give me a break. I have no value for it. Meh, meh. 
Like he would never come here. He'd be like, dude, you preach too long. Just get to the point, man. Just tell me what to do. Don't give me theology. I just want to know what to do. Give me my commands and I'll do it. It's a waste of time here. But he's tortured. What do you mean? Look at verse 24. They tell him, they've beaten these two guys, Paul and Silas. Deliver them over. They say, hey, keep him safely. So what does he do? Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison. So this prison would have been built, dug underneath a house. His house would be on top of it. So it's just these, these chambers underneath the house. The, the inner prison was the lowest cell in that prison. So put yourself back 2000 years ago. There is no indoor sewer. There's, there's none of that. So when these prisoners go to the bathroom, guess where it all goes? It runs downhill into the inner prison, the lowest cell. So they're in the muck. They're literally in the muck. He puts them there. Wasn't commanded to, puts them there. And then he also, it says, put their feet in stocks. Now get out of your mind, the Puritan you know, punishment in like Boston or whatever in the 1600s. This would have been, and we found them, that these long pieces of wood, two of them, that had holes in them that matched up and a bunch of holes along a line. What they would do is this. They would stretch your legs as far as possible apart, then put them in the furthest holes they could and close them up. So you're in continual pain and torture all night long. He tortures them. Why? Why does he want to torture these two dudes that just had the snot kicked out of them? Maybe, and I could be on conjecture right here and I'm okay with it. Maybe he's got PTSD. So you have Roman soldiers and they would start as teens. And what a Roman soldier would see in his life, we can't imagine today because our battles are now fought through computer screens and scopes. Their battle was fought eye to eye with your enemy right there looking at him. And if he kills you, you're dead and you have to kill him. You would know him, you would hear him, you could smell him, he's right there. It was a different kind of war. Something that I don't care who you are begins to change your soul. So as a lad, as a teen, he's seen this, he's fought in it. And maybe all that over the course of years and years, it just has grown in him and grinds him. And even to this day, he's just a tortured soul, right? So Paul can't go to him and preach the gospel because you can't preach the gospel to people that don't give a rip. You can't share the gospel with somebody that's like, I don't have any use for that. Something has to happen to him where he says, Paul, help me, right? What has to happen to him? His God has to be tore down. I think this guy, his God would be duty. Duty is his God. I serve my country with honor. I've raised my family. It's my duty. I protect this city. Duty right? I will protect these, soul, these, these prisoners with my life because it's my duty. And when he thinks they're escaped, what does he want to do? Kill himself because he's lost his God. You will know what your God is because it's the one thing in your life that if you lost it, you would say, there's no reason to live. That's your God then. So I talked to a mom once who told me this. If my kids ever did that, I couldn't take it. I couldn't live anymore. I said, well, you just told me what your God is. Your kids are your God. They have way too much control of your life. It's unhealthy. 
He's got his duty. He's lost his duty. And rather than face the public humiliation of having to explain himself and maybe even serve their sentences, instead of doing that, he says, nope, death before dishonor. I'd rather kill myself than to lose my God. And what changes him? Two people that respond in a way that he can't explain. Two people after being beaten, tortured and put in the muck, start singing songs. Two people that when they can escape, don't escape and instead actually keep the other prisoners from escaping. They do his job after he's tortured them. And he just says, what is this? Because duty never does that. My God can never take me that far. You have a power, you have a God that's greater than me and I want that God. Who is it? How in the world can I be saved from this? How awesome is that? And there's some in here. You're not Lydia's. You're not slave girls. But rather, your life, some things have happened to you. And they shaped you. They become a lens by which you look to the world. And that lens is always distorted. And so then there's bitterness and there's anger because of it. And then you respond in ways to people that sometimes you don't even know why you responded that way. Like, why am I responding that way? Well, it's shaped by something that happened on the battlefield or in a bedroom or back in your life. And it's still having repercussions like a rock thrown into a lake that has ripples for a long time. And it affects you like this guy. And then finally you see something that you can't explain. You come to the end of yourself. You despair of life itself. And then then you see something and you say, I want that power. And Jesus comes in and he saves you and you become a different kind of person. This same guy that tortured them now bandages up their wounds and feeds them dinner. The good that they did overcame the evil of this man and he's transformed. It's an amazing thing. There's some jailers in here. So if you were saved in this way, I just want you to raise your hand. Who, who here would say, that's probably closer to mine. Yeah, praise God. He saved us. No formula here, huh? Three ways, three different kinds of people and God just uses, it's super natural. That's what it is. It's super natural the way these guys get saved. And where in the world would you find these three types of people coming together? Walmart? No way, CEO lady's like, I don't shop at Walmart. That's for the peasants. I go to Gooseberries and REI. That's the only places I go. <laughs> right? The goth girl won't be let in because she has her pet rat. They're like, you can't let that pet rat go. It could reproduce in here. Sorry, leave your rat. I won't leave my rat. It's my comfort rat. Okay, fine. You can't come in. <laughs> the Marine's like, that's Chinese junk there. I go to Bymart, man. I'm a Bymart man. I only shop at Bymart. Right? The only place you're ever going to find these kind of people together is in church because the power of Jesus makes us belong to a brand new family and it breaks down the racial and economical and spiritual and psychological barriers that separate people and destroy us. Instead, it unifies us into this family that's brilliant and powerful. I love it. See, Acts is supposed to make us excited. Like, oh, that's how evangelism works. What? That's how evangelism works. Like, like, it works like that. I don't do weird things like ask silly questions Rather, some people get saved by sermons that are preached and Bible studies that are given and answers that are given like the gal named Lydia. And there are people that do that really well. But other people get saved by 
men and women in here that go out and confront dark powers and say, these systems that are set up are just wrong and I'm gonna tear them down. People like Rebecca Bender who are helping trafficked women get out of it. People like my brother-in-law Clyde who goes into the gospel rescue mission and Jack Straw who goes into the gospel rescue mission and says, we gotta confront these dark powers first. We gotta get rid of these addictions first. Like I can't have a conversation with you until we get rid of this dark power. I'm gonna deal with that dark power first and I'm gonna see you set free. People that go to the pregnancy care center because a lot of ladies that go in there, hard things have happened to them and they're underneath a cruel slave master that's destroying them and it's heartbreaking. And people go in there and they set them free. Safe families, on and on and on. And there's the people that do that. And there's other people that, that they help the jailers because you're the only Bible they're ever gonna read. They're not gonna come into church. The Marines not coming into church. I got no use for that. But when, when life happens to them and it happens to all of us and you respond in a way that's unbelievable, bad things happened to him and he started singing a song. I was mean and evil and disgusting to him and he just kept being good back to me over and over and over again. And finally they're broken by it. And they say, I want that power. I want that power. And they get saved. That's how salvation works. Philippi gets transformed because of this. The church at Philippi is called the, the, the church of joy. The city gets changed because a bunch of people are doing this right here. Super naturally. But math, I mean, come on. It's the apostle Paul. Superhero of the New Testament. I mean, come on, it is him. Okay, let me show you something really fast here. Look back at verse 17. The slave girl who had the spirit of Python, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So she's screaming this at Paul and Silas. Verse 18, this she kept doing for many days. So Paul's trying to share with someone, hey, you know about Jesus? Screaming, this is the servant of the most high God. He's just like, oh, okay, right? He goes to bed. In the morning, he wakes up, walks out, there she is. There's the servant of the most high God. He'll show you the way of salvation. Oh, great. The next one, he's like, I'll walk out the back door. He goes out the back door. She's like, I'm here. I have the spirit of divination. I knew you were gonna do that. Ah, right? So why does he set her free? Read. Paul, having become greatly compassionate. No, what is it? Annoyed. He's angry. He's angry. It's not love, it's not compassion, it's goodness gracious. That's it, I'm done with this. And God uses the annoyance of a missionary named Paul to set free a little girl trapped in evil. I love that story. I love this story so many levels because Paul's a flawed man like you and me. He's not perfect. I love how the Bible just tells it like it is. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't say, well, we shouldn't put greatly annoyed there. We'll just leave that out. Paul turned and said, no, the Bible is just honest. This is how it worked. That God even used the annoyance of Paul to bring about his good, that he's the one that's able to do that, that he is the one. I mean, it's brilliant and it's amazing. I love it. That God can use some of the things that we don't even know he uses for his kingdom. Have you guys heard of Arthur Stace? you're gonna hear about Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace, this guy born, I think, they think about 1886 or something, lived in Sydney, Australia, went and fought in World War I. If you know history, 
World War I, by far the most brutal war ever. Because for the first time, we were having technology transform warfare. So you were having these armies come out with literally horses, cavalries, and then the other side, it's tanks from German. And they're just blowing up people. That, what is that thing? Boom, you're dead. Oh, okay, too late. Like it was, it, it was, a, it was, it was night and day for the first time. Like it, brutal. And on top of that, trench warfare and gas attacks. Like there's never been a war. Hopefully there'll never be a war like World War I again. It was that brutal. So he went to that war. He comes back from it. He's broken. PTSD big time. Goes homeless, alcoholic on the streets of Sydney. Till one day he stumbles into St. Barnabas Church there in Sydney. Hears the good news about Jesus Christ. Believes in Jesus. Set free from that dark power and becomes a believer. A couple months later, goes in, listens to this guy. His name is John Ridley. He was called Give Him Hell Ridley. <laughs> the Reverend Give Him Hell Ridley. I think that's a great name. The Reverend Give Him Hell Heverly. It has a good ring to it, man. When you're roasting in hell, you wish you would listen to me, boy. I could start doing that. <laughs> listen to him. The message that he gave was this. It was about eternity. And he ended by saying, I wish I could scream from all the streets of Sydney the word eternity so people would have to consider their end. And that rang in Arthur Stace's mind. Illiterate, unable to write really. He went out with a little yellow piece of chalk that night and he pulled it out and he looked at the sidewalk and he wrote in these scraggly letters the word eternity in yellow chalk. And from that day forward, every morning he'd wake up and he'd go out way before anyone woke up with waterproof yellow chalk and he would write all over the city the word eternity. So the next morning, people, jailers and CEOs and slave girls that were waking up would walk out onto the streets and they would see the word eternity and they'd have to consider their end. And no one knew it was him until he died in 1967. And a pastor that knew him saw him one morning early in the morning, walking around writing. And he said, you're the guy, huh? Yep. It's estimated that he wrote that word eternity 500,000 times in the streets of Sydney. But it doesn't end there. In 1977, when Sydney Square was dedicated, the, the center of Sydney, where if you're going to Sydney, you're going to come through Sydney Square and visit there. It's an attraction. There in the center of the square is a big plaque and written in bronze letters is the word eternity and scrawly bronze letters, but it doesn't end there. In 2000, Y2K, when the world was gonna go dark, right? Well, Australia was the first Western nation that had all the computer problems that would cause problems. So if, if we're gonna go caveman, it was gonna start in Australia. So the world's attention was on Australia on New Year's Eve of 2000. And there on New Year's Eve of 2000, uh, there's a bridge that goes over the Sydney Bay and as the clock ticked down at midnight, when the world was watching, there lit up in yellow scraggly letters the word eternity on that bridge. But it doesn't end there. When Sydney hosted the Olympics and the world's attention was on sports, for a moment, their attention was lifted to something maybe more important because spelled out in yellow fireworks in the sky of Sydney on the opening ceremony was guess what? the word eternity, but it gets even better. June 3rd, 2018, the 11 a.m. service at Edgewater Christian Fellowship. 
The word eternity. <laughs> one dude, one word. How many billions were forced to think about something we normally don't think about? Because of one dude with one word. Because here's what Jesus loves to do. He loves to take my five loaves and my two fish and to break them and multiply them and use them in ways that I never imagined. He loves to do that. He loves to use the great annoyance of Paul to set a captive girl free. Because Ephesians 3.20 says this, now unto him that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think for his glory. And so we go from here, doing what we're supposed to do, preaching sermons, giving reasons, being thoughtful, having discussions, confronting dark powers, living lives that are the only Bible that people are gonna read because we have no idea how Jesus will take those things and use those for his glory and for his kingdom. Even our annoyance. Matt, I'll even use your annoyance to save somebody because I'm that powerful. That's what we do. And maybe you're here today and you're like Lydia before she believed or like the slave girl before she believed or like the jailer. The Bible says this, salvation is super simple. It's right here in our text. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus made it super simple because he wants you saved. That's why. And then when he saves us, he makes us into the kind of people that can minister through sermons and Bible studies, through confronting dark powers, through living lives that look like Jesus. He makes us into those kind of people. Today should be your day of salvation. Believe on him. He's the king. His rule is coming and it's here right now. It's broken in. That's what Acts is, the breaking of the kingdom. It comes, it sets free. It gives us salvation. Believe. And if you do that today, we'd love to know about it because we wanna join you. It's called discipleship. We wanna join you. So if you believe today, come grab me. Talk with me after service. I'd love to walk with you that, through that. I'd love to answer questions that you might have and know the kingdom that you've been brought into. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, know he's able to use your life. It's not cookie cutter, just sermons are this way. It's broad and brilliant and incredible when we all engage.